Welcome to the Arena Decklist Podcast. I'm Jerry Thompson, joined by Brian Gottlieb and my man. I had a busy weekend last weekend, sort of, kind of, maybe played in two Magic tournaments. Okay. Tell, tell me about both of them, please. I know about one of them. I don't know about the second one. Well, you may remember a while back, I won an LCQ for the standard qualifier. Ah, uh, Yes. Yes, I do remember that. And that overlapped with my fake legacy heritage, whatever you want to call it, thing that I played in that was run by Honorog and and Mason Clark. So I don't know. Like the arena thing to me is is not really real because it's all digital and I don't even know what the tournaments are anymore. And then obviously the legacy thing is like, not very real either. So I, I technically played and I entered two tournaments, you know, but for, for how much they matter, I'll, I'll leave that up to the listener, I suppose. Well, no, I'm going to decide how much they matter because I want to hear more specifically about the legacy tournament. I, I looked at all the deck lists from the event. Uh, it kind of fell in the range of what I expected. I think like some aspects of the metagame were probably ignored just due to the nature of it being like a weird low stakes tournament. But what was your impression of just like playing the games and the metagame? Did it did it scratch the itch you were hoping it would hit? Well, uh, last week we talked a little bit about the quote unquote format and where my head was at. And then after that, I went back in the tank and I think I broke it. And then I built a different deck and played that, which, oh. which was the Sultai thing that I registered. But basically came to the conclusion that... Obviously, Uro is very good, right? And it just kind of like dawned on me how well it works together with Sylvan Library. And then through all of my research, like looking at current legacy decks, people would have Sylvans like in their sideboards or something. Mm -hmm. But I was just like, no, I'm just going to like play a bunch of like Sylvans and Uro's main because, you know, maybe this isn't like a realistic curve against a lot of opponents. But like in theory, if you have Sylvan going, so like turn two Sylvan, turn three Uro, it's like, Sylvan gives you a bunch of extra cards and resources, and then Uro lets you put like those resources into play and gains you more life to like keep activating your Sylvan, you know? So oddly enough, despite people not really doing that in the real world, there are also people that showed up in this tournament utilizing that combo. Okay. Smart. So my my first I guess the take, power level is lower too, right? Like that that does matter somewhat, but a little bit, but like as, as far as power level, I mean Sylvan is is kind of absurd, assuming that the format is conducive to you having some sort of like cheap raw engine, you know? Also time, like you have to be able to survive more than a turn or two, which I think you do in present legacy. For See, what it's I, I don't think that that's that big of a deal because Sylvan is so cheap and just immediately gasses you up, you know, like I would want Sylvan library against storm if I were like a six force of will blue deck. Sure. You know, yeah. like they have a bunch of like duresses and stuff. So I think that card is awesome against them and just lets you build up like this wall of counter magic. So I, I think that Sylvan just in general is pretty great. Uh, I've played a lot of Sylvan over my years. Certainly one of the like first cards I have memories of owning and just like being over the moon about. And I'm sure like probably using it very badly just because that's what we did back then. Oh, yeah. Dude, I used it badly in that tournament. Yeah, okay. So you're still doing that. That's cool. But I I think it's like a, a card that if you could tell me, like, 
this is what the legacy format is focused around, I would be so, so happy. Like just a perfect representation of what that format should be about. There was a moment in round four, I sort of playing for top four, although I, I lost and then Caleb got fifth on breakers, but I think that my breakers were higher than his. So I think I was playing for top four and he was playing for fifth, but there was a moment where I just kind of did like this lazy thing where I played a Sylvan, Caleb played a Narset, and I like very quickly just like set an upkeep stop without thinking about it too much, you know? Mm-hmm. And then on my upkeep, I went to Assassin's Trophy, the Narset, and in response, he March of Otherworldly lighted my Sylvan. Mm. So what I should have done if I were not being lazy was like I would have F5'd to turn off the yields because I had yielded to the Sylvan. And then in my draw step in response to the trigger, I would kill the Narset because then even if he kills my Sylvan, I would have still gotten the library trigger. Yep, absolutely. So in terms of using Sylvan poorly, uh, that that was my story kind of. But And now you understand why I was a full stop gamer. uh, Like if I thought about it for two more seconds, then it would have been... It would have been pretty easy, you know. I, I believe that on your end. The, my problem was I just never thought about it, so I just needed to like always have that safety valve. Uh, I, I moved away from that, by the way. I don't still full stop game, but that's that's why when I was playing a bunch of these formats, where like I don't know when I was at my peak moto, and Vendillion Click was a real card, and th- there was just more going on in those phases. I think, uh, especially in the formats I was playing, so I was not willing to trust myself with the responsibility of turning on my stops. Yeah, legacy for sure, especially when you get into those weirdo blue mirrors and stuff. But I was also putting pressure on myself for like time reasons, even though I I got crushed 2-0 like pretty quickly. And I don't think the time really would have been a factor. I think we both still had like over 20 minutes on our clock or something. Mm. But uh, it was was still just one of those things where it's like, I do not want it to come down to this. Like I'm, I'm playing on mouse and trackpad, you know? Yep. But yeah, I thought my my deck was good for what it was. I think it was like a good version of the thing that I built, uh, which was this Saltai control deck. So, man, I I really miss Force of Negation and Flusterstorm, let me tell you. Because I believe that. Yeah, without those cards, you do not have quite the defense against any sort of like spell-based combo deck. And there wasn't like any storm i think in the tournament at all but there were some things just like mono red moon stompy and like sneaking show and stuff like that and so building my deck i was like well you know is, is spell snare gonna be good against some of these decks like if they're if they're playing like actual storm spell snare is reasonable if people are playing like teamer delver or just like a lot of sylvans and iterations and stuff then snare is good uh but probably have to play some pierces and Started with uh, the Miser's Days. Love the Miser's Days. Got him. And then did my blue card count. And turns out it was like 17 or something. So I was like, ah, I got to add a couple cards. So that's how like a random Jace the Mind Sculptor and a second copy of Days snuck in. Realistically, I should have just played the fourth Uro because, I mean, that card's blue. So Very true. Uh, but yeah, got some Thoughtseize and, and him to Tarox to back up my disruption for like the spell ish combo we decks. Uh, and I don't know. I'm, I'm fine working with like counter spells and discard, you know, uh, it's, it fits pretty well into my wheelhouse. I don't think that it's necessarily like the optimal way to go about things or whatever, but w- once you strip away the supplemental products, 
you just don't have as much good interaction. So I, I felt like a, a little panicked and felt like I, I needed some more stuff. So that's kind of where, where the black came in. And then I had, I started with four Tarmogoyfs and then was just like, I don't even think this is like that good. I just want some against Delver as like blockers and whatnot. So uh, shaved one down to three, sided one out in a lot of matchups, uh, was just kind of there as like another removal spell that could also clock people. And yeah, it was just doing my, my Sylvan Library Uro thing. Had uh well throwback pernicious deed in the sideboard just for funsies. That card was Love pretty it. cool. Yeah. So I don't know. Like tournament was fun. The games were fun. I really I don't think it's that much better than normal legacy. I think it's definitely better, but I also think that if it were this legacy format without supplemental cards, well, you probably take action on some stuff like or right. you probably go like I know the top four was like all combo decks or whatever, or like, you know, prison and combo. But like given enough time in like bigger fields and stuff like the blue decks would figure out a way to adapt and evolve and Uro would very clearly be a problem. But like in in normal legacy, it's like everyone's doing messed up stuff, I guess. So is kind of fine yeah that's interesting i just like browsing the deck list i kind of had the other impression where it felt like if this format was given time to breathe it would just eventually settle into spell-based combo really hard because the disruptive tools are not as good uh and and i'm just not sure they're there quite frankly like the absence of flusterstorm and force negation like you said does feel like it leaves a bit of a hole so maybe I mean, it's all moot, right? Like, it's just a completely different format, and the terms of engagement would have to be totally different, and you would have a totally different ban list. And um, it's an interesting thought experiment and and a fun one. And I thought it was really cool to see the tournament come together. Yeah, me too. And it was it was like kind of short notice, pretty good prizes, good coverage, good roster. Uh, so they they kind of crushed it. And yep. as far as participating in the events and you know, being a person who was featured a couple times and, you know, the way that they set stuff up for how you need to like share your screen and, you know, the turnover time for rounds and how coverage was running. Everything was super smooth, man. There is a lot of talent developing around the production of content it used to be something that like only organizations with a lot of resources could do because it was very complex and you needed like, you know, your multicaster type setups to be able to actually make it run and look pretty. Uh, what I have seen very, very small groups of people do just over the last couple of weeks in the flesh and blood space, we have a really cool tournament series going on this tournament. Really cool. It's, it's such an upgrade from where we were, you know, even just five years ago. And it gives you hope that things like this could kind of come back to the limelight and, and be successful and be a cool YouTube product or a cool Twitch product. Even if they don't have the same, I don't know, the same vibes that like old SCG tour GP stuff had there, there is a way we could potentially fill that content hole at a lower cost, which I think is the critical part of it. Cause the, the money's yeah. just not there to do it at a high cost. So. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't want to be the one to like organize or do it because it's a ton, ton of work, work. Yep. and requires like a lot of bodies and hurting cats basically. But I don't know, like they, they, they just kind of crushed it. I was really impressed. Uh, normally when I, I do things like that, I just kind of expect it to be at least a little bit of a shit show, but this was just like, Nope, this like, here's, here's 
the stuff. Here are the rules. This is how we do things. And then we did it. There are, there are like technical difficulties at the start, but like that was not their fault. That was like discord was being weird with permissions for like who could share their screen in these private chant, you know, like mm-hmm. just weird stuff like that. But like once that got sorted, it was just smooth sailing, man. Nice. Well, I hope we see more of this going on, even if it's other weird experimental formats, if it's a return to this one. I think it's an exciting evolution and a way to serve kind of underserved portion of the player base right now. Yeah, it was cool. I I hope people enjoyed it. I want to go back and uh, watch the coverage at some point. I was watching in between rounds, like when when I had finished my matches, you know, Mm -hmm. Uh, and it, it seemed pretty good to me. So cool. Definitely want to go back and do that. Uh, the other thing was like the, the deck that I think I broke it with was like uh, Teamer Delver that started w- with, you know, Delver Tarmogoyf and me not wanting to play Nimble Mongoose and remembering that like maybe way back in the day, I don't know if people are still really doing this. I haven't seen much Teamer Delver show up on like the Goldfish deck list or anything, but, you know, either playing Uro main deck or in the sideboard or something. And then I was just like, yo, let's get those Sylvans in there yeah, and just side out Delver, Delver every time. Yeah. And I was just like, this deck looks nice. And then I was just like, all right, Sultai Pile, let's go. But I think that this this was a sort of thing where it's like, okay, tempo-y kind of aggro deck. You have reasonable interaction, a lot of good card advantage because you still have like Iteration and Mystic Sanctuary too on top of like the Uro Sylvan stuff. So you're, you're just never going to run out of gas, right? One of the things that better Delver players definitely knew and understood about their deck was that it was a beautiful game two and game three deck. You were you were very, very well set up to play varying types of... I mean, like, it obviously depends on your configuration. There was some, like, hard, nimble mongoose stifle stuff that could only do one thing and just did it very linearly. But as Delver evolved, it got to take on very different forms and had a lot of these slightly larger game plans that were... When you went into games two and three, you had plans for everyone. There was nobody you couldn't outvalue. There was no combo deck you were prepared to adapt to. And a lot of it was like, I don't need these Delvers anymore. They're just not that important in so many matchups. So I I, I love plans like that. Moving in on the Euro, uh, it reminds me, again, of Legacy a few years ago. So I, yeah. I guess I was a boomer chasing that same high. But it, it was a really good format. And there's nothing wrong with wanting to play really good formats again. Right. And as far as kind of like transformational sideboard plans go. And granted, a lot of this stuff was in my main deck, but like Sylvan Uro is, again, such a good engine and so good at playing those sorts of games where you can play a Sylvan pretty early before a whole lot has happened in the game and then just use that to keep you like gassed up on like spell pierces and pyroblasts and stuff. So I I really like that idea. And then there are also just going to be some matchups where they're like really worried about the card Delver of Secrets and it's just not going to be in your deck anymore. Yep. Yeah, they miss sideboard against your plan. It's something I benefited from many, many times. Yep, keep keep those supreme verdicts, buddy. Yeah, it was it was cool. Uh, I don't recommend, or I don't, yeah, I don't recommend playing like my Sultai deck, but it, it was a lot of fun. So if that is your jam, by all means, do that. I mean, that's kind of what we're there to do anyway. But I think I think that's about it. I think that might be my last foray into Heritage, my first and last. I hope to make my first foray someday. I don't know when that circumstance will be. I, I hope that these folks lean into the format and do more of it. That's that's my wish. We'll see if it happens. 
I would like to see a bigger field, you know, like can sure. can you can you expand on on that sort of tournament into like 32 players or 60? Well, you players? mentioned you mentioned it being a lot of work and obviously as you change that it gets to be more and more work. So that's Of course, of course. Yeah, that's up to them. Anyway, the other thing was the standard Arena PTQ hot off the heels of a very impactful banning in Meat Hook Massacre and I qualified with a little Jund Soul of Wind Grace deck which uh, you know, Meat Hook Massacre definitely mattered. And it kind of kept decks in check that would otherwise maybe be much worse matchups because if you don't have this kind of like catch-all and also this source of life gain to help you stabilize, and if Meat Hook doesn't exist, does that mean that there's just going to be like a lot of aggro decks running around? Because like that would be bad for the deck too. So the other thing was... Although the arena tournament started at like 9 a.m., the Heritage thing started at noon, so I had a few hours to actually play it, but I was also very concerned with the notion of like potentially having to double queue at some point, especially with the deck that I ended up registering for the Heritage thing. Right. So I was like, I'm not going to mess with like a good deck. I just built a mono black aggro deck, got my ass kicked around one, and then dropped. Okay. So not not really much of a story there, but I, I guess like why mono black aggro was there something about it that appealed F- to you? F six equity mostly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because th- there were things with like gruel aggro, for example, where it's it's not super trigger intensive or anything, but there there are a lot of things with like Raiju or you know the the two drop that dies and puts counters on stuff where it's like you you do kind of have to like be clicking a decent amount whereas the black deck does have some stuff like evolve sleeper where it's like you're gonna have to click a few times over the course of a game but for the most part you're just like turn two play two drop turn three play a three drop whatever and uh you're just kind of off to the races so or you die quickly also another option yeah uh i i took it i was pretty pretty happy with that option honestly understandable I, I i guess that kind of leaves us as a podcast without much of a focus right now I, I was looking forward to talking more standard and i knew there was an arena open so i was like oh this is cool it lines up really well then i did some more research the arena open is in the alchemy format yeah. so i don't know anything about the alchemy format i i like sort of floated the idea like well you know maybe we could just get up to speed and learn about it and then like i went looking for some no. alchemy content and no. there is none and then i found an alchemy deck that someone said was good and i looked at the cards in it and i'm like i don't know any of these cards so it's not happening like that's it's just not a real format to us i think where that leaves us is just continuing to discuss standard there is things like i don't know Ma- magic 30 i'm assuming there's probably like standard tournaments there there's there's worlds so maybe Worlds competitors want to know what we think of the standard format. Are they playing standard at Worlds? Yes, I believe. Gotta so. assume so, right? Yeah, because that was one of the things that people brought up when we were talking about like, is standard actually relevant, or like maybe it's going to be relevant again. People are like, well, Worlds is standard, and it's like, well, that's for you know, thirty people. Thirty people. Like, who does does that mean that people are actually going to care about it? I think the answer is no. I mostly think so too, but I don't know what else to talk about. And I found the results of these challenges pretty interesting uh, in terms of just unpacking Meat Hook Massacre as a ban, how effective it was, did it do the intended job? It's a really interesting question to me. And I will say, I think the answer is yes. I think I think it did exactly what it was supposed to do. Now, the question is, are people 
pleased with what they thought it was supposed to do? Are they satisfied with how this has changed the format? I don't know the answer to that because it is not a dramatic change, but I do think it's just enough of a change to make things interesting and worth talking about again. I have looked over the results of the 1016 one. I haven't gotten to the 1017 one yet, but I'm definitely, I'm, I'm seeing like, you know, more creature decks than you would expect. Yes, slightly more. At least, at least when Meat Hook was around, but it's not like aggro decks. It is mostly the mid range sort of like go wide and then profit somehow piles that would previously get destroyed by Meat Hook Massacre. So that's good. That at least adds like another thing to the format where it's like, well, if you if you can't keep all of my random legends in check, you know, I'm going to find some way to kick your ass with them. Yeah. I mean, do you just want to talk through the results of these two challenges? We could even move right from first to eighth and both of them. I think that's a fine way to just talk about what's going on here. Now, these are hard to get to presently. Uh, I guess Magic Online is in the midst of its transition Correct. To Daybreak Studios. Do I have the name right? I think so. Sunset uh, Studios. <laughs> like maybe more aptly named. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I, I had uh, the Magic Online deck list stuff bookmarked on my computer for the last decade or so. Yep. And I, <laughs> I was like, I'm going to do my homework yesterday, you know, and mm-hmm. check up on the Magic Online results, see what's going on, see if there's anything interesting we're talking about. And I clicked the link and was very dismayed when like the first time in 10 years, it just didn't work. It brought me to the new Magic Online homepage, which is fine. And then I scrolled down to see if I could get to decklist because that's normally where it is if you go to mtgo.com and kind of panicked when I didn't see it. And I saw like this decklist header up top. I was like, Ooh, okay. I clicked it. Just redirected me to the homepage. I was yeah, like, all right, I'm off it. <laughs> <laughs> You're not going to get there through the old fashioned ways. Luckily we at the arena decklist podcast are an experienced uh, group of hackers. And we cleverly, we put on our like VR headsets and we got those cool gloves. Like have you ever seen Johnny Mnemonic, one of my favorite movies of all time where Keanu Reeves is like hacking into the net by just poking randomly at the air. We did that and we hacked into the mainframe of magic and uh, figured out how to basically just replace dates in standard challenges. And we do have links to these two challenges. So we'll put them in the description because I know that could be a little bit annoying to find if you're trying to follow along. They are still there. Put them in the description. We are Gerald. We are, because we're a good podcast that takes care of our listeners. And I'm sending them to our editors right now to make sure they make it into the description. So if we don't, yell at our editors. Jerry and I try to do it. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the thing is that you say that we are going to do it. And I know for a fact that neither you or me are going to do it. And then there's also then the question of like, if we don't do it, does it get done? Who knows? But yeah. First standard challenge, uh, yeah, the links the links are the 16th and the 17th where they get posted the next day. So this was actually like the 15th and 16th. But uh, first place, the more things change, the more they stay the same, I suppose. Uh, it was won by Jund, although no Soul of Windgrace and obviously no Meat Hook Massacre because you can't anymore. Uh, but this one has two copies of Burn Down the House Main and is more creature focused. So Blood Tithe Harvester, some Workshop War Chiefs, pretty normal. Also, four Graveyard Trespasser, three Shieldred, two Tenacious Underdog, and then basically like some Fables and a pile of removal. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to spoil it a little bit too. When you get to the next challenge that goes on tomorrow, won by almost the exact same deck. It's like three cards different, I think, in the 75. But 
basically the same setup. Burn down the house, taking the place of Meat Hook Massacre as the sweeper. Same River Tears charm, Unleash the Inferno stuff going on. Like you said, only Solover and Grace really disappearing uh, from last week's list, which I think like is still a matter of personal preference. I wouldn't take that as any hard indication of the way the format has changed in the aftermath of Meat Hook Massacre. I think just some Jun decks are built designed to take advantage of that card. Some are not, and that's that's fine. That'll it'll come and go in relevance. Uh, I don't I don't think Meat Hook Massacre itself has a ton to do with that change. Well, let me. Let me add something to that, I guess. Uh, when theory crafting for what what changes and a little bit more specifically what should be changed about the Jun deck that I was playing uh, after the ban, one of the things that I thought about was the fact that Masker is Gone is obviously like a huge hit to you because you don't have this sort of early comeback mechanism and Burning down the house is like pretty expensive, obviously. And also like doesn't necessarily kill everything, which is like kind of weird too. But one of the ways I thought I could mitigate it was by having more of a board presence early. So some of the Jun decks were playing like a couple graveyard trespassers or Briar Bridge Tracker or stuff like that. And I was like, yeah, I mean, if, if you wanted to play a more creature centric Jun deck with trespassers, underdogs, uh, like what these lists are doing that's perfectly reasonable also people kind of like moved away from shieldred removal again like the the jun decks weren't playing a lot of grass they weren't playing a lot of charms or anything it was just like all bolts and cutdowns and stuff so that's that's kind of one of the reasons why i want to play mono black too is like i'm just gonna play four shieldred and you know hopefully hopefully that works out it did not work out but whatever so instead of having to clean up this super wide board with a meat hook or a burn down the house you just play out some things early to block. You have a uh, you know trespasser, which uh, obviously I'm not super excited about that card in general. But like three three is pretty reasonable if it transforms. Okay, cool. Like you're kind of holding the fort, and then that makes the necessity for a sweeper even less if you are able to actually like interact early versus I just literally have to kill everything. Hmm. And so I think that. This plan makes a lot more sense when you don't have Meat Hook. And if you expect there to be more aggro decks or at least creature decks like playing to the board early. And then once you have things like Trespasser and Underdog in your deck, the necessity or want for Soul of Windgrace drops dramatically because Soul is kind of setting you up for this longer game, maybe going up to Titan of Industry and some bigger stuff. Whereas Trespasser kind of puts you more into the model black, you know, mid-range aggro camp, however you want to describe that deck, where you're not super interested in like playing until turn 10. You know, like you do, you do actually want to win via damage at some point. And so having a trained Armadon while you're also trying to sit there and accrue advantage with Windgrace doesn't make a whole lot of sense, right? Uh yeah. Yeah, that all checks out. Maybe another thing along those lines. Soren the Mirthless starting to creep its way back into these decks. I, I know like it had seen play in John for sure. Numbers here are not huge. I see in both the winning lists, one in the main deck, one in the sideboard. But that is a card that does seem to fit with that idea of like doing things a bit earlier, getting onto the battlefield a bit earlier, and then uh, you know, still getting your life gain 
rolled up in that card. And when you think about like that card comp- compared to Soul of Windgrace, I actually see a lot of upside for Sora and the Mirthless in metagames, especially when the metagames are not about Mihook Massacre anymore. Yeah, I, I like Soren in general, and it is kind of an embarrassment of riches thing where you have Soren, Shieldred, Windgrace, like kind of whatever four drop you think fits the scenario, right? And That's cool. That, that that reminds me of like uh, what I see as the recent like high peak of standard formats, basically right after the I always get the Ravnica sets messed up. Whatever Ravnica we were doing like commentary around, the one that had Krasis in it, Krasis was kind of like the first step along things getting really destabilized in my eyes. But the format leading yeah. into that was really cool. And its hallmark was just having a ton of options up and down the curves. And the decks were evolving along those spots on a week-to-week basis. And it was really exciting. Yeah, I, I love that. And this this is what we're seeing with John too. I mean, it, it started off as like Workshop Warchief, Titan of Industry, and then had, had kind of become like a little bit more aggressive, like Trespassers or Trackers or whatever, and then went to Soul of Windgrace, and now that Meat Hook's back, it's like kind of back to this thing. So uh, I, I like having that variability within archetypes to swap out cards. And I mean, even, even now, a thing that is constant is the ever-shifting removal suite. Right? Yeah. But where it's like, you know, do you want cut down or do you need bull to take out underdog? And is grasp actually good enough? Like is charm a thing that you need or is it a little bit too clunky? You know, I, I think like two weeks ago we saw like zero charms in a lot of these lists and now we're yeah. seeing four again. And I think that those things are really important to giving the, the player or deck builder a sense of agency and identity as far as, you know, crafting their deck, crafting the tool that they are going to use to kind of like dismantle this metagame. I, th- I think that stuff is super important. I agree. I agree entirely. And I, I, I look at it when I'm looking for hallmarks of a healthy standard metagame, those are the type of things I'm searching for. I want to see them there. That tells me that like things are in a good place. I think most of this standard's problems have almost nothing to do with the cards themselves. It's just a support problem. You can't fix that with card design, unfortunately. But I, I do think the design for this current block we're looking at is very solid overall. Yeah, it just it just needs more, right? And and that, that makes sense at a five-set standard, right? Like, it's correct. only going to get more from this point. Correct. I, I do think it would be interesting to look back at previous standard formats. And obviously, this is nebulous. But if you were able to label the cards as like playable or not playable, like how, how many playable cards total existed in the format and what did that do to those formats? Like, I I think that this standard format, for example, probably has like more playable cards in general, Mm -hmm. but it's also very distinctly lacking in certain things. And there's the ubiquitousness of certain things like Fable of the Mirror Breaker, right? Where it's like every single Jun deck is going to have four. Like, that's just not a question. But for the stuff around it, you have plenty of options. And I think that that's great. And I'm pretty sure that if you went back and like did the numbers for that, the the, the formats with more playable cards would, would appear healthier, or like be more fondly remembered. Yeah, there's something to that too where kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy because if they're... If there are more playable cards, like unless you're talking about just talking about playable in a vacuum, which is an almost impossible thing to do, but the playable cards are always somewhat determined by the limitations of the format. So like if there's a, you know, emergent ultimatum format, 
the playable cards are defined by the existence of that card. You yeah, are, I mean, I, I would still like even if ultimatum is thirty five percent of a field, so deck X is quote unquote not playable. I would still count the cards in that deck as playable. You okay, know what I mean, okay, so, yeah, yeah. yeah there, there are going to be certain formats that have problems where it's like, oh, here's just this thing that is kind of ridiculous and oppressive and sits on top of a lot of other stuff and makes it feel kind of irrelevant. I, I think that those are going to be outliers more than the actual truth. Sure. Sure. And I'm nitpicking a bit. I, I agree with your sentiment where I, I do think the options are quite high in this five set standard, uh, higher than we would usually expect. So, yep. Uh, second place CRK with Esper. Esper. Esper's getting weird, man. So this deck is light on Plaza of Heroes, but this is a thing that I've sh- I've seen sh- show up more and more where it's like just one of the best mana fixers, oddly enough, in the format when some of your early best cards are legends. So Plaza mm-hmm. of Heroes is a land, taps for colorless. You can tap it to add one mana of any color, spend this mana only to cast a legendary spell. You can tap it for one mana of any color among legendary permanents you control. And then three tap, exile this, target legendary creature gains hexproof and indestructible until end of turn. So like the last part, more of a rider than anything, obviously in late game scenarios, it, it can be reasonable and do stuff. But uh, yeah, this this with like Rafine and Denik, Pious Apprentice and a bunch of other stuff is it just kind of like makes Esper's mana better, assuming those are cards that you wanted to play already. And then there are some other decks I think we might get into that uh, really go hard on Plaza of Heroes. So pretty cool. Agreed. I think it's a powerful card. Anytime you can sort of break the restraints of mana bases, you get really excited about it. And like you mentioned, things like Rafine, Denik, decks just want to play these cards. It's not really about making the mana base work. It's uh, a, a real interest in these cards. The, the one that always stands out to me is the Raven Man, which was a card when like I read it in preview season, I wanted to like very, very badly. Like I just wanted to actually be over the moon about it. Uh, it has the kind of combination of abilities that I don't know. It's just something about it feels like very despotic scepter to me, very slow and grindy. And in my eyes, not something you can realistically do in the present world of magic, but I am seeing more and more the Raven man as time goes on. What do you think about this card? Is it, is it a real magic card that people should be playing? Or is this like a concession to these Plaza of Heroes mana bases? It was on the maybe list for the sideboard in my mono black deck. And when Dominaria first came out, I think within like the first week or two, people were doing like Raven Man Liliana stuff. You saw some Raven Man Rafine stuff. Mm-hmm. And basically, I think that if you are able to get the trigger incidentally, that's cool. That's that's all fine, well and good. I think the card's reasonable, but like playing the card to activate it is is probably a bad idea. Mm. And I don't know, man. I've I've had Cabal Interrogator type of stuff like in my sideboard and mostly just lose with that sort of stuff. And this thing, it's it's not very flexible in that regard. You know, um, the the cost to actually activate it is fairly prohibitive. So I'm not a huge fan, but I get it, especially when you have things like Plaza and, you know, Denik enables Plaza to cast some of your stuff, but then it's like, well, is, is Plaza actually a black source? Like, can you count it? Like, is it going to help you cast Shieldred or whatever? Or in this deck, it has three copies of Invoke Despair, right? So like, yeah. I think you need some amount of Raven Mans or at least like a black legendary creature or whatever. Like, I, I don't know. Yeah, it seems like Raven Man is the best way to get 
those invoke despairs cast. So that's or that's actually, what I think. But there's so few plaza of heroes in this deck that it would be very odd to just like warp your mana base around the Raven Man. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, I agree. And I, and I had a moment there where I was like, wait, is the Raven Man legendary? It is legendary. It is. Yeah. It is. Yeah. I just I just had this weird moment where I was like. The, like the Raven Man, like that doesn't sound like a legendary creature to me. Am I just making stuff up? It's like, no, nah, it is. I think I think the the makes it sound legendary. I don't I don't know. It it does, but like the Questing Beast would have felt more legendary to me. Yeah, that's true. I don't just know. Call, just call every legendary the from now on. I'm in on that. Anyway, this Esper deck, twenty two creatures, three wedding announcements, three invoke despairs, and some interaction. No, like. Kaitos, Emperors, anything like that. Just like a pile of creatures, like creatures, yeah. to the point where you're playing like Adeline. Yeah, interesting approach. Uh, but this this is like a huge beneficiary of the Meat Hook Massacre change, right? Like you just wouldn't yes. want to mess with things like this in that scenario. So now with much fewer sweepers around, you're able to leverage those wedding announcements a little bit better. And, you know, more mid-rangey stuff, obviously still based around the color black, but doing something a little different. So good evolution here. Yeah, I mean, white white creatures can come out to play now. Yep. Uh, third place, Coco Co O nine eight, Kami War, Leyline Binding, Fable, uh, Unleash the Inferno, Herd Migration, Workshop Warchief, Land of War Loam Speaker, some lands, Celestis Bankbuster, a couple fun ofs. I don't know, sweet deck. Yeah, I I just think the Kami War is coming to do exactly what I thought it would, it produces an incredible amount of value. These decks seem to be sort of warping more towards just accelerating out a commie war and making sure that's enough to carry the game. And it will be in a very large portion of, of the games you play. So uh, I believe in this card wholeheartedly. And even at six mana, I still believe in it. I actually went back this week and read my notes on the commie war that I submitted. Did, did you sound like a genius? Uh, I'm I'm not going to call myself a genius, but my prediction for what this card would do if it was at five mana was spot on. And this is without knowing about Storm the Festival, right? Correct. Nice. Correct. Good, good job. Thanks. Uh, fourth place, Chemist, one, two, three, four. Another Esper deck, three Plaza of Heroes, no Raven Mans, uh, still has Denik, Rafine, Shieldred, Al, the Dawn Sky, Wandering Emperor, uh, four wedding announcements, a bank buster, and then some interactions. So, yeah, I think a, a lower legendary count in this list, despite going up to three Plaza of Heroes, which is interesting. More land, though, to be fair. One extra yeah. land. Yeah, yeah, so true. That, that helps. But yeah, I, I think you can sort of free roll some amount of plazas, but it would be certainly very awkward to have a plaza, no Denik, not be able to cast Rafine on three in your Esper yep. deck when previously basically like any combination of three lands would be able to cast Rafine. So I'll, I'll also say, I think I'm higher on that secondary ability or I should say tertiary ability than you are the, the Hexproof Clause. I, I think that's a very real end game for these decks that often get forced into playing a little bit longer and just like setting up Shuldred with backup is a, a pretty real, real way to just steal a bunch of games. So it is. It just takes a long time. And it the does. way that these decks are built now, also, like, you know, in a lot of instances to facilitate Plaza of Heroes means that they have to be, like, a little bit lower the ground, a little bit more nickel and dimey, not play as much late game stuff. So you're not going to find yourself in those late game scenarios as often as the Esper decks of last season, for example. 
This particular build, though, I would push back on that. I think this build is a little bit more slanted to play towards those late game spots. So. Yeah, I agree. I mean, you have some Phyrexian Missionaries, Ow, uh, Underdog is pretty reasonable. That stuff has Bankbuster main, and the the sideboard looks pretty well set up to to yep. play those games too. Like a lot of counter spells, more card duress, damage. farewell. Yeah, just like very much willing to shift into just a complete long game setup. Edgar, yep. so uh, fifth place, Gwynthos, some numbers. Jund, Soul of Wind Grace, two Titan of Industry, two Workshop Warchief as the top end, some Cruelty of Gixes. Uh, see one Elder Dragon War, one Burn Down the House in mm-hmm. this deck. No Riveteer's Charms. Yeah, the removal suite is awesome. Like one Voltage Surge, one Terra Sunder, two Infernal Grass, two Unleash the Inferno, three Cut Down. No Bolts main or in the sideboard. So. No bolts, but like that, that sort of thing where it's like, oh, I'm going to play one surge instead of a cut down because it can kill something that's a little bit bigger, like a trespasser if you need yep. to, you know. Um, also, the the nomadas in the sideboard, I still don't know what the nomadas are for. No, me neither. But I, I, I again think this is a really good expression of the creativity available to you as a deck builder right now. And like, if you have good plans and you're like, I'm going to approach this matchup this way, this matchup this way. Here's my elephant plans where like I sideboard into all these different decks. All of these configurations can make sense and they really allow you to express yourself as a deck builder. Speaking of which, sixth place, Smile Papa 4, another Jun deck. This one, four Invoke Despairs. Creature base is Blood Tithe Harvester, Briarbird's Tracker, three Shieldred, uh, four Fable, four Pankbuster if you want to count those. But like pretty mid-range, but pretty small ball too kind of with just yeah. invoke at the top end so i mean th- this is basically a mono black deck or basically like what the rakdos decks looked like too except you know you can get some extra colors for some unleashes terra sunders briar trackers whatever yeah a, a way harder shift to like the card advantage e mid-range traditional style than we're used to seeing out of this color combination right now i would say and it's interesting too because like one of the reasons I think the black deck started branching out a little bit was because we talked a lot about the reach that things like mono black and even just like the default Jun deck started getting through things like Invoke, through things like Meat Hook Massacre. With Meat Hook Massacre gone, some of that reach is also gone. So maybe there isn't the same need to go to like Titan of Industry, Workshop Warchief type stuff. And once that happens, you're able to streamline a little bit more towards black and really focusing on things like Invoke Despair. So an interesting little twist that's happening. And I, again, think it's Meat Hook Massacre related. Yeah. Uh, Funny thing about the Meat Hook ban that has come up a couple times with deck building and matters a little bit for this deck that has two copies of Soul Transfer is that you don't always have like the random enchantment line around anymore. Mm -hmm. So like we saw the mono black decks pick up Roadside Reliquary, and I thought that that was awesome. No, it it is very cool. And... Again, another small consequence, but there's so many ripples, and it's it just goes back to the reason why I think that the Meat Hook Massacre ban was such a good ban. Like there's there's so many small things it does, so many things it incentivizes, and I think we're just seeing the first effects of that change. And I think there will be further effects as time goes on. All right, I have to get the text of a card because I want to read this for the next deck list. Oh my god! But uh, Gatherer is also down. We just have to guess for all the cards for the rest of and the day. It, so I, I I Googled it, right? And I clicked on one of the links and it was a link to Gatherer. And like that also was down. I was um, hoping so it was going to be to a textless version of the card. That would have been Oh a, my God, that would have been. Slam dunk. So uh, this, this seventh place deck by Seventh Prophet. Yep. 
Oh, wow. That, like, that's interesting. Weird. Seventh prophet falling in seventh place. And, you know, if they are truly a prophet, right? Yeah. Uh, okay, so this is uh, We Are Going Hard, Plaza yep. of Heroes deck. And yep. uh, a couple weeks ago, when I was not really playing standard, was talking to Joshua about his experience. And he's like, oh, yeah, I started playing against this deck with Joda the Unifier. And I was like, that sounds like a box topper. That doesn't sound like a, a real card. And like I had drafted and like played some sealed or whatever. I'd never seen this card. And, and I guess, you know, to be fair, it is mythic, right? But then he read me the text of the card. I was like, dude, that like how how can they cast a commander card against you? I don't understand. Like, this is not a real standard card. Uh, so Joda the Unifier is Wooberg. So one man of each color, five mana total, five, five legendary creature, human wizard. Legendary creatures you control get plus X plus X, where X is the number of legendary creatures you control. Whenever you cast a legendary spell from your hand, exile cards from the top of your library until you exile a legendary non-land card with lesser mana value. You may cast that card without paying its mana cost, put the rest on the bottom of your library in random order. So Wooberg legendary thing gets like just real big. All your stuff gets real big. Uh, and then all of your legends cascade into more legends. And the base of this is white. The stack has Catilda, Thalia, some Denix, uh, Adeline, uh, Lagrella, the Magpie, King, Darian, Numbers, Shauna. But, but then there's also Wade. there's also a Halana and Elena too, right? <laughs> because well, it just has no adherence to mana cost whatsoever. Yeah. So I mean, you you have to cast Joda, right? You're like this Bant base. That's trying to cast Joda. So you're you're playing all this random nonsense already. Halana and Elena is not that far off. And in terms of what we're doing here is just building like an enormous battlefield presence. I mean, Halana and Elena and Joda both do that really well. And also the deck has like Intrepid Adversary and like Katilda to make a bunch of mana. So the, the first time I actually played against this was I think in one of the qualifiers I played. And it was a really interesting experience because it was it was basically just like, all right, I have this meat hook, but it's not really going to do anything when all my opponent's creatures are 10 10s. Right. So I just had to kill like every single thing as it came out. And there were definitely turns where I was like, well, if I develop just like play a workshop war chief or whatever, and then they play a Joda, just like all my removal turns off. So I just have to, instead of, you know, spending five mana on a war chief, it was just like, I just have to like grasp your thing and that's my turn, you know, but like that, that's kind of what you have to do against these decks. Scary, scary, a scary setup, a deck that I am glad exists. I think things like this being around the format are very cool. I think the support for it is, you know, low cost to include in these sets and, it finally coming together into a a real Thalia deck too, which is is yeah. nice. Like Thalia actually playing the role it's supposed to play, where you just jam your deck full of creatures and you mess up what your opponent's trying to do. That's very cool to me. We cheat and get some removal in the form of the Wandering Emperor, which also can give us battlefield presence and maybe is just like too good not to play, I guess. But for this deck to look as good as it does at five sets. Uh, I, I would keep an eye on this one. I could see this getting very, very strong, uh, especially because like it's got the hardest part figured out right now. The the mana looks functional to me. And if you're able to do that consistently, this just expands over time, gets better and better. Yeah. I mean, Katilda does a lot of work and yeah, like you said, a lot of things had to come together, right? It's like you have all these tri lands, you have all these 
Painlands, you have Plaza, you have a bunch of legendaries in place from, you know, this being a Dominaria set, obviously there's going to be a bunch of legendary things and just random seeds from other sets like Catilda and, and Thalia that were just kind of like there, you know? This is the benefit of every set being designed for Commander. Yeah. And when you get good cards around Legends, you're just, you're paid, you're ready to go. You have a host of options to choose from. Katose, Lagrella. Uh, King Darien, extra large, like just whatever you want is on the table. King King Darien XL the eighth is that, is that where we're gonna call yeah, him? Extra large the eighth, correct? Yeah. Uh, okay. Eighth place for MTG, another Jun deck. Uh, again, kind of kind of different, kind of the same. Uh, three Soul of Wind Grace, but also two Underdog, two Trespasser, three Titan of Industry, two Workshop War Chief, Cruelty of Gix, uh, four Voltage Surge. Yeah. Two Riveteers Charm, three Unleash the Inferno, no grasp, Bankbuster, 26 land. Uh, this is this is kind of like all the gun decks shuffled up. Yeah. Like I said, that's fine if you have a plan. And I think we're seeing a lot of different plans and very, very cool to see. All right. Second challenge, uh, like you mentioned, was basically won by the deck that won Saturday's challenge. So not a whole lot to talk about there. Yeah. Yeah, slight sideboard differences, but you can go check them out for yourselves. Things like uh, a Jaya Fiery Negotiator showing up, return to Liliana of the Veil on the sideboard. So cards falling in and out of favor, but main deck very, very similar to the winning list. Second place, Yotsugi, another Kami War deck. A lot of similar cards, but also a couple Shieldreds sneaking their way in here. Got like yeah, Shadow Prophecy. Yeah, I, I think there's a core with this deck, right? And then, again, because it's a five-color deck, which uh, do not lose sight of the fact that we are successfully playing five-color decks in five-set standard. That has real implications as the standard expands and gets definitely better land options, right? Like we know more land options are almost certainly coming, even if they're just pain lands and there could be better lands than that ready to hit the the battlefield. So we'll see how that evolves, but I, I would not lose sight over how well these decks are already coming together, playing Leyline Binding efficiently, playing the Kami War efficiently, and just only going to get better over time. Well, if we have Brothers War type of stuff, I don't know if more cards got previewed. I like got on Twitch this morning before we recorded and there was a magic thing going on, but it was mostly just like showing off art. I only caught like the last, you know, five seconds of it or whatever. I don't know if more cards got previewed, but regardless artifact set, right? So yep. I don't know, you know, how much that is going to give us in terms of like actual manifesting, but there's also gold cards in the set, you know, so I don't know if they want to facilitate that stuff a little bit more. Yeah. And there's like a, uh, kind of like five color bent to some of the artifacts we've seen, right? Like, isn't there right. multicolor activations? So um, we don't know if the support's there, but certainly payoffs continue to be there. So yeah. Mogged in third place, a lot of planes, light touch of red for fable, but this is kind of like the deck that we saw week one where we're just invoke justicing some sanctuary wardens and calling it a day. Yeah, and that's a fine plan, and I like it backed up with Restoration of Aganjo. These these two saga creatures, infinite value they bring to the table, and they allow decks that are, quote-unquote, uh, I wouldn't quite call this aggressive, maybe aggressive-leaning mid-range, but they give you both offense and card advantage wrapped up in a single package. Reminds me a lot of Adventures, and I expect that all of the decks that float somewhere on the 
aggro mid-range bent without ever touching full aggro or full mid-range will be very, very interested in these sagas, especially as long as Fable of the Mirror Breaker is around, which doesn't seem like it will be forever, but uh, we'll see how that one plays out. Maybe. Uh, Fourth place, if you are looking for a budget option to get into standard or just magic in general, there Mm -hmm. is no better place than this. Brecaroni, 21 Island, a lot of commons, and then I think Haughty Jin is the only rare, but this is like Delver Secrets, Haughty Jin, Talarian Terror, and a bunch of spells. Not as much counter magic as you might expect. Three spell pierce, four make disappear, and then a lot of it is just like consider impulse, thirst for discovery, uh, just kind of going off with Haughty Jin and fueling up those Talarian Terrors and protecting yourself with slip out the back, and that's it. This deck can't cost more than like five tickets max yes, there's no way so if you want to hop on play some magic online this is a very good way to do it uh if you are like me and your arena collection is starting to fade into shambles without four of everything you need great option here and i i, I do think the format has to look a certain way for these decks to be successful but we did talk about these being something uh when we were doing preview season that really could have some impact on the format if it breaks in a certain way if it becomes very like large spell based and you can actually successfully do this tempo thing it's been a long time since you've been able to do it but there's a lot of good pieces here to enable it <laughs> i think the meat hook ban made this deck worse not because it affects it but it just means that the jun decks are playing like underdogs and trespassers and maybe yeah yeah more early creature decks you know it's like oh man i just want to like counter your titan of industry i just, like, just want to spell pierce forward. you like that's my that's my dream scenario spell pierce your your removals Right, and now there's 30, what, 33 creature Jota decks? (laughs) Going to be a tough matchup for this deck, for sure. Yeah, not great. Still made top four, though. Uh, Pretty impressive. Uh, Tournament entry fee definitely costs more than this deck. Oh, yeah, for sure. Daniel Pena, fifth place. More Jund, more Cruelty of Gix. uh, Another one Elder Dragon War, one Burn Down the House split. And yeah, one the one Terrace under one Voltage Surge. So pretty similar to the other deck. Yep, back to Solar Wind Grace, Titan of Industry, War, Workshop War Chief on the top end. Choose your poison. Figure out how you want to attack the format. Commit to it. Is it with Namada Primeval Warden in the sideboard? I don't know. I don't know why it would be, but everyone else does, so. Yeah. Parasite Grasp, card that might be... A lot better now that creatures are kind of unlocked. This is the two damage gain two life. Is that correct? It's three, three to a human. Three to a human. Thank you. Thank or you. you can cleave it to have it be anything. Any but, target. Yep. yep. Okay. Yeah. A lot of humans floating around. Makes sense. Six place Christian hearts, blue, white control. I think there's a light black splash. Yeah. Void rent. Parasitic grasp too. Shouldred's in the sideboard. So once we get to the sideboard, all bets are off. A lot more of commitment to that black splash. Yeah, I think we talked about this deck either last week or a couple weeks ago. My style, for sure. Thinking about how this was impacted by Meat Hook Massacre bands. I mean, it's it's kind of cool. Everyone's sort of like, oh, no more sweepers. We have to bring out all of our 33 creature decks. And you're just like, eh, farewell. And, I, and depopulate, too. Yeah. Like, yeah, I like that shift. Depopulate is a card that you know basically hasn't shown up. It hasn't had a reason to, really, right? Right. So I right. think... People are are just going to forget that it exists. Like, oh, how can they sweep me on turn four in blue-white? You know, and it's like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, very easily. Uh, Seven place, fair MTG again. Probably same Jun deck. 
looks yeah. like this sideboard for voltage surge. But yeah, looks looks like a very similar setup. They've found their plan and they have committed to it. Uh, he's place Cabeza de Bolo, more Jund, and more just shuffling up Jund cards. All right, so we have two Soul of Wind Grace with four Riveteers Outlook, but also playing. Briarbridge Tracker, three Shieldred, so that's a lot of fours. Uh, some Titan of Industries, one Workshop Warchief, uh, two Underdogs, one Soren, two Bankbusters, two Soul Transfers. Uh, Soul Transfer, notably one of the few cards that can actually kill Soul of Wind Grace if, if mm-hmm. they're rolled up with mana and everything. Oh, yeah, we are we are so permanent-based that the sideboard, you get to have a Storm the Festival. Storm the Festival, it. yeah, a little, a little extra value there. Huh, that's an interesting line. I mean... I don't know about it in this setup, but as things become kind of like inbred and targeted and maybe more focused on Jund, because obviously as we talked through these two standard challenges, just a lot of Jund going on. It's obviously like a very big focal point of the format. You wonder, can you just like get that value from Storm the Festival and start playing those late games where you're just chaining these things and your value engine now is basically untouchable at that stance. You'll just outscale everything your opponent is doing. Interesting approach for sure. What's really interesting to me is that it allows you to be pretty low to the ground and then have that as your top end and then mm-hmm. still have a payoff for ramping with soul. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Getting to that nine mana breakpoint, or is, is it 10 for the flashback or nine? I believe it's 10. Yeah, 10 mana. So if you've played any amount of Storm, you know it's like sort of a self fulfilling prophecy. You hit six to do your first storm. And then you're very quickly because of whatever value you have in your deck, getting to 10 off your next storm. And then that's leading to the next six to the next 10 and just snowball So, so hard from that spot. Really interesting path for these gen decks to go down. Maybe lacking like a shriek maw type effect that could really push it to the next level. If they were able to do a little bit more uh, commitment to their mid range plan, like a, a ravenous chupacabra, in these decks with storm, the festival would just completely change the way these decks can be built. Yeah. You don't, you don't have that, but you do just have war chief and, and soul and stuff like that. That can provide you immediate value. So that's kind of nice. Yeah, for sure. Like storm into soul, get back riveteers outlook, get a little bit of extra life gain there. And then you're already at seven mana next turn. You could be at, nine potentially if soul lives you make your land drop and attack and get a trigger yeah man that sounds pretty good that's that's not bad huh well maybe we just discovered yet another variant of john that will start to pick up over the coming weeks yeah i i don't know i think like it would be very easy to look at these top eights and say oh well lol they banned meat hook massacre and look john is still the best deck and it's still all over the place but i i don't think that actually tells the whole story i think the john decks are all interesting I think what is happening sort of below the surface of the Jundex, particularly with the Kami War, very, very interesting. It's all very focused towards the middle. And at some point, things will get so focused to the middle where you can either go below or go over. My money is always on going over. We basically just find better and better ways to go large. And that's why something like Storm the Festival Solo Wind Grace is quite appealing. Because I, I, I don't think anything will be able to go over the top of that. And you'll still be able to present a lot of the same early game that these decks are presenting. Yeah. So there's there's a lot of Jund, right? And there, there certainly was previously. But there are also a lot more white decks and more variety of white decks. Yeah. And also, I don't think the point of any ban should be to kill an archetype unless there's just no way around it. Agree right? entirely. Agree. So yeah, card card gets banned. 
the deck that primarily was the one playing it is still around and is still good and is now lacking in a specific area. And then the decks that are able to capitalize that are now showing up and there's like a little bit more diversity. That is awesome. And also you see in the way that the Esper decks are being built now that they have decided that probably the best way to, to combat Jun, since you can't go over the top of them, is to try and go under them. You see the Esper decks just getting like more aggressive and just playing more to the yep. board. And that wasn't a thing that you could do when Meat Hook was legal. Yeah, really smart, really subtle. And uh, I, I will note too, I'm going to give myself, I don't know if you can hear it. That's a good pat on the oh. back right there. Oh yeah, I heard that. I know, I, I know uh, what that noise is. I've heard that before. Good. I I have been quite nice to Wizards of the Coast for two weeks in a row on this podcast. I just want to put that out there. I, <laughs> I feel like I am, you know, being fair and saying almost exclusively nice things. So Maybe maybe the checks are clearing. Maybe they're just doing things right. Who knows? But no, checks are not clearing. I shouldn't even joke about that. I just think they they did a really good job with this scenario. And uh, man, I'm, cool. where's my payoff? Yeah. Well, you know, check the mail. Maybe they're coming. I do. I just, got, was, I just got the mail like two days ago, and it was after maybe like a month. Okay. <laughs> a lot of exciting things in there. No, of course not. I do everything online, man. Like. I, I would say 70% of my mail is from the previous tenant. Mm. Yeah, mine mine is sometimes exciting just because like if I'm ordering cards, I'm usually pretty excited to go to the mailbox and, and when see When was what's the last there. time you ordered cards that were well, not flesh and blood? Well, a while. But I also now own every flesh and blood card. So I'm just out of things to buy as far as flesh and blood goes, which has kind of left this empty void in my life, which I am filling with synthesizers. But those get delivered directly to my house, so I don't. Yeah, I don't you got to sign for those, man. Those are expensive. Yeah, yeah, they come either like DHL or FedEx. So, uh, yeah, not quite the same post office experience in that case. Oh, okay. Last thing, dude, you have to tell me about your cat. I don't own a cat. I don't know what you're speaking of presently. All right. Uh, so, folks who follow Brian's social media. I, again, I haven't really been on Twitter, so I don't know if you've been like tweeting cat pictures or whatever, but Brian sent me a couple cat pictures recently where the cat's now in his house. I don't know how often it's in his house, but it is laying very snugly on his couch. And dude, it looks like you have a cat. Okay. So the cat does come in my house every single day, which does make it seem like I might own a cat every day. Every day. I'm not yes. sure I understand. What is what is happening? Why do you keep getting involved with this podcast, Siri? I don't <laughs> even. Right. She's like, I don't understand why don't you're patting yourself on the back. I don't either. Do you own cat food? Yeah. Bro, you yeah, have quite. a cat. Uh, we also own a cat bed. Yep. Which the cat does not like. Not interested. Oh, yeah. Here, ran, random blanket or, man, even a box. Yeah. So here's why I continue to resist the idea that I own a cat. It's not that this cat doesn't come all the time or that it's now welcome in my house, despite the fact that my wife is very allergic and just like, spends most of her time sneezing. We actually got a better robotic vacuum to better deal with the cat hair situation. Nice. But it, it's that I know somebody owns this cat. So saying I own this cat, it means I've stolen the cat from someone. If, if it was a stray cat, no. it would apps. Yes, it does because the, I am positive the cat that somebody has chosen you. There's a I, reason it spends a lot of time at your place, man. 
I appreciate that. And the cat is always welcome to spend time at my place when, whenever it wants. And I will always open my door for it. But generally, it does want to leave. It doesn't want to st- – sometimes it'll stay for a nap, you know, and once it stayed the night and it definitely just, like, slept in our bed. Dude, um, so that that was very much uh, – A cat. If, if I owned a cat and my cat just did not come home, I would be worried. And I know, you know, for, for folks who have, like, indoor-outdoor cats or whatever, like, I know that that's a thing. You know, sometimes your, your cat could, could just go on an adventure and be, you know, homeward bound seven or whatever – but I, I would still just be super worried. That's why my cats are, aren't outdoor cats. You know. Here's the thing, though. This cat, so we know the previous owners of our house. This cat has been coming to this house for approximately a decade now. Okay. Just just popping in, and despite that fact, we are now here in this house for a year and four months. And I remember we saw the cat. Day one, I remember pointing to the driveway and like the cat bolted out of the driveway and then it would occasionally pop by like once every three to four months, but just wasn't here all that often. Now, for whatever reason, the cat has reasserted its commitment to this house, but I feel like at some point he's just going to be like, well, I'm off again and he's going to find another house he wants to hang out at, or he's going to go back to his actual owners and stay there. And I don't want to like, I don't want to restrict that. I want to respect his cat freedom, let him live his life. And he's he's done this mode of like transferring between houses very successfully for about a decade, and I don't see any reason to like restrict him from doing it because he he does want to be outside. Like he's a very much outdoor cat. He loves. Yep. We have like what they call Juliet balcony off one of our French doors, which is like a half. I don't know how to describe it. Basically, it's a, a balcony that has enough room to stand on, and you can't even like walk around it. You could just like stand on it and lean over it. And he sleeps there all the time when he's outside. Just like hops up onto the balcony. And, and sleeps out the window. And I think that works for him. And I think it's good that he has a place where he knows he can get food if he wants it. He feels safe if he wants to come in and take a nap. If it's raining out, he can always come in and hang out. But ultimately, he's in control of like his destiny. Yeah. So I, I don't think that it is the safest to have your cat be indoor-outdoor. But if the cat is you know 10-plus years old and that is the life that they have become accustomed to... I'm not sure how then trying to lock the cat inside would affect it. Yeah, but I think you'd be very angry. Probably. But a couple things. Getting older might come a time when you, you have to make a call for, well, it should just be staying inside and then maybe you have to find out who the actual owner is or whatever. I, I think we know at this point. I think we have figured it out. Okay. Well, that kind of sucks. Then, then maybe you don't actually have a cat. But I, I think that you have a neighbor who has a cat that likes you more than it likes them. Yes, that seems accurate. And and you just also have to like understand the area that I live in. There's a lot of barns, a lot of farms where there's just like food out all the time. And you walk cats obviously street. come and go from farms as they please. Yeah, you walk down the street and you, you pet some goats, man. You know, right. like I, I get it. But at the same time... There's a bunch of farms, cats running around outside, probably going to get into some stuff that it shouldn't. And, you know, maybe it gets his ass kicked by a goat or something. And like, obviously yep. no one wants that to happen. So, yep. Yeah. No, we'll be keeping a close eye on him and uh, doing whatever we feel is best to give him a good life. But I, I do very much appreciate him stopping by. It's coming at a very good time for us where obviously we lost a pet 
and don't really like want full on responsibility of another pet right away, but having him just pop in, get some pets, basically exactly what we needed. So it's a gift, you know, I mean, even, even with my indoor cats, right. It's like, you can't force a cat to do something that is just not going to last long. You know, like you pick it up. If it doesn't want to be held, it will find a way to escape whether you like it or not. Right. Absolutely. And so whenever the animal chooses to come spend its time with you, like you, you know that that is just genuine and honest. Right. And you don't necessarily get that all the time with humans, but with, with the animal, you know, it's legit, man. Like the cat comes in, lays down on your couch. Like it, it feels safe and knows that, you're going to like feed it, take care of it, whatever. And it wants to spend its time with you. Like, that's awesome. Yeah. Even little things like uh, the other day, there's a huge, huge, huge snapping turtle in my yard and the cat was around outside when it was there. And we were like, well, don't want the cat to go anywhere near the snapping turtle. Obviously we want it to be safe. So we scooped him up and brought him inside and go back two or three weeks ago. He would have never let us just like walk over to him and pick him up and carry him somewhere. But he was just like, oh, okay, where are we going? Yeah. So things like that are cool to see little bit of trust has been established and yeah. yeah, maybe you can't do that all the time or whatever, but in the short term, it's probably just like, yeah, this is fine. You know? Yep. Give them a little turtle protection. Move on with the day. Well, well done, man. I know that, you know, cat is pretty friendly or whatever, but it's like, you still got to set like a good, nice, loving example to, to make a cat feel safe, even if it is, relatively domesticated and is used to like going around other people's houses or in whatever, you know? So mm-hmm. I, you, you done good. You made a friend. I'm happy. Very happy about it. Keep me updated. That's all I we'll ask. We'll do. You'll get, you'll get more cat picks. Don't worry. You and everyone else on the internet. Game. Good luck.